1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the title of the, today's message is His Grace, Our Unity, and Your Calling. His Grace, Our Unity, Your Calling. Um, Corinthians has a special sort of place in my heart. Uh, when I first got saved, um, I had been reading Revelation and God used Revelation to get my attention. But 1 Corinthians is one of those uh, first books, along with Philemon, that I remember actually reading. Um, I can remember reading uh, on the bed in my room at my mom's condo. And, uh, you know, this 10 by 10 room that had been a prison cell for me. I didn't like living in New York at the time. Um, but when I got, it came to know the Lord, everything changed. I remember reading it at night on my bed and the light and uh, just pouring into it. Probably uh, not understanding much more than I understand now about it. But uh, in, in truth, it really just ministered to me. Um, you know, coming out of the world and coming out of uh, a lot of crazy things, Corinthians is a good book to get into. Um, but really that the Word will wash you. As we read the Word, it's going to wash us. As we get into the Word, it's going to wash us. You know, Jake this morning had his face up against the screen. He kept telling him to take his face off the screen and take his face off. And he looked like a puppy dog. He had a black nose and like black mouth, you know, from the dirt on the screen. And we had to wash him. But I think sometimes that's us in the world. We get close to the world and we put our face up against it. And there's soot and there's dirt and it gets on us and we need to get washed. And, and one of the, the only real ways, I mean, obviously the blood of Jesus is going to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all that. But really to begin to wash our mind and wash our lives, the Word is going to do that. In fact, the Word exhorts us to wash our, our, as husbands, to wash our wives with the water of the Word. But we remember that Paul, you know, he had been spending time in Ephesus like we've been reading about. Uh, remember, he became a believer when Jesus confronted him, confronted him. And the letters to the Corinthians are very confrontational letters. Uh, if we read about Corinthians, we know that the church was uh, in the world and they were of the world. Uh, the things that the world practiced, they were practicing. They even, you know, thought themselves to be super tolerant and wonderful people because they acknowledged the things of the world and, and thought that they were um, doing okay by God. But Paul confronts them with that. And I think sometimes we think that Jesus would never be hard on us, that God is never going to confront us, that it's, oh, I come to church and I leave feeling blessed and I, I feel better about my life and all this really nonsense. Because when we really come to the Word of God, we're going to realize, wow, my life uh, lived in my own strength, lived in my own ways, is dirty and needs washing and needs confronting and needs changing. But we remember Paul was once uh, a killer of the church, but now he's used by God to actually plant churches. And how God can take someone completely in an opposite direction from where they were going in their own strength. But if we remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Corinth is a major port city, similar to Ephesus, famous city, three quarters of a million people. I think that's um, about the size of Montgomery County. I think Montgomery County is around a million and, and, and change people. Uh, so it's actually smaller. But modern cities, you know, New York City never sleeps. Philadelphia, cheesesteaks, but they love. And again, we remember um, that all as all these cities in modern day have the reputation, Corinth had its reputation. And that was for wild living, for uh, sexual immorality and partying and all these things. And that's where this church is. And that's a lot of the problems that this church has is, is worldly problems, is uh, problems of the community around it. Because the people who come to the church or other church are a part of the community around it. And that's the way it should be, um, in a sense. Not that the sin should come into the church, but the church really is an amalgam of the people there. But Father, we ask again as we get into your word that you would speak to us, you would cleanse us, you would convict us and exhort us. And God, may we walk away here feeling refreshed and blessed, but not good about ourselves and our own strength, but good about uh, who you are and what you're doing in each of us. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's read a whopping two verses together as we get in here. Um, it says, uh, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are the sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And we're actually going to stop there for a second. It says, Paul, he's called to be an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. And the, the underscore there is that it's through the will of God. That Paul's will was not to be an apostle. Paul's will was to trash the church, to destroy the church. But God said, oh yeah, Paul, my will for you is that you would build the church, that you would spread the church, that the things that you would write down in the letters to the church would become foundational doctrines for the church uh, for all of history um, because it's God's will. 
And this word apostle, uh, really, it was a witness of the resurrection. You know, remember the the, uh, the disciples that remained became apostles because they witnessed the resurrection. And more than that, an apostle is someone, a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. Um, you know, it can be applied to other Christian teachers of the time, such as Barnabas, Timothy, or Silas. But really, uh, it's someone who witnessed the resurrection. You know, there, that there's the literal apostles, like uh, the disciples, because they knew Jesus and they followed him and they, they witnessed his resurrection. In a sense, Paul witnessed the resurrection as well because Jesus showed up to him on the, the road to Damascus. Uh, but then there's also the, the gift of being an apostle, where it's someone who is sent out, someone who's a delegate of God. I'm not saying that, um, that there are apostles today who have witnessed the resurrection, but I think in a sense, the, the office of apostle still exists. Someone who goes out, who's sent out, uh, whether they're a missionary or to plant a church or, um, you know, I know guys who are pastors, but I think that in a sense, they have the gift of apostleship where they've gone out and they planted successfully church after church. Because God's used them just like just like Paul has, like where they are a pastor, but they begin to go out and pastor more and more churches. I think of, you know, in a sense, someone like uh, Chuck Smith, where the ministry that God used him to go out and plant the new church spread and more and more churches uh, uh, came through and out of that. But again, no one has the, the same apostolic authority that you that these guys did. There's no guy. You know, even though you may see a, a van or a church sign that says the most holy reverend apostle so-and-so, you know, they don't have the same authority that these guys did. The only authority we have is from God, just like they did. But the things you and I say and, and do aren't really uh, scripture per se. There's nothing new. Um, but Paul's calling was from God and not man. And I think that that's important in any endeavor. You know, if God calls you and I to do something, whether it's to move somewhere, whether it's to work somewhere, whether it's to marry someone, you know, whatever it is in life, if God's led you to do that, that's the only authority you need. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, you go around and tout it. You know, God told me to do it and that makes me special. But really, when opposition comes, when hard times come, when God, when you know that you know that God has led you to do something, um, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only qualification you need. That's the only piece of paper on the wall. You know, obviously, you know, if you're not ordained by the church, you just can't call yourself a pastor. You know, there's, there's obviously limitations on that. But if, if God's led you down these paths, who's to say that, you know, if you feel like God's told you that you're going to be a pastor, that you're not going to be one day. I remember um, years ago, the Lord, you know, saying to me in a sense what he said to Peter, where, you know, if you love me, feed my sheep. And so I knew that that was my calling. Whether I, I knew I was ever going to be a pastor or not, I really didn't know. And, you know, in a sense, I kind of hoped it and I, and I desired it, but I didn't really necessarily expect it in every man. I knew, so, okay, I'm in the youth group. I'm going to keep serving the, the, the sheep. And, and God has brought that about to be. And I remember some good marriage advice um, a friend gave to me before getting married. He's like, marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. And you need to know that you know that God has called you to marry this person. Because if you don't know that and you get into the marriage and you are married for a while and trouble comes up, you're going to want to be, you're going to want to flee. You're going to want to, whatever the case may be. But if you know that you know that God has called you to this person, it makes it that much easier. It's sort of an anchor to hold on to. And if, if that's not the case, uh, for anyone listening that, well, now that you are married, that is the person God has called you to marry. It doesn't really matter what happened beforehand. But that goes with anything in life. When hard times come, we need to know that God has called us because that's the only qualification or ratification of it. But with that, if we have the will of God, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Well, the scripture, uh, I have several scriptures here. The scripture is pretty clear to point that out. It's not uh, as ambiguous as we might think. Um, you know, for John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think we would all agree that that's the will of God, that people would believe in Jesus and have everlasting life, that the will of God is not that anyone would perish. And that's a pretty general statement. You know, we could say that for everyone, uh, but sometimes we lose the, the personality in there. Uh, Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and that perfect and that acceptable will of God. And 1 Peter 4, 9, Let those uh, who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator, that as we suffer for doing the right thing, that we need to continually give our will to God. And, and that's part of God's will that, well, suffering is going to happen because the world doesn't do the will of God. And so if we're doing the will of God, it's probably opposite what the world wants. And you know how the flesh is when, when, when we want a cookie and someone says no, we might get angry about it. And even more so in spiritual sense, when the world wants to do something sinful and we say, 
that's God. That's not God's will. That's sin. They kind of get angry about it, and you might face persecution for it. But for this is the will of God. First Peter two fifteen and sixteen says uh, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not as using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. That the will of God is that while you do good. You are then a light to the world, an example to the world that these foolish people who think themselves wise would realize, whether they realize it or not, that, well, you've got something different. There's some other power that's ruling your life that they don't have. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, and this is very pertinent for the Corinthian church, but that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore he rejects us, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit, that God has called us to live a holy life, a separate life, a sanctified life. And those who would say otherwise, they would say, oh no, you can live as the world does, you can do as the world does, and still be holy, still be in ministry, still do the Christian life. Uh, Paul and the scriptures say um, very clearly otherwise, that, that that is not the will of God, that God wants us to be holy, to be separate. And part of that we see here as we've gotten so far into verse 2, sanctified, in the word hagiazo, it means to render or acknowledge, to separate from profane things and dedicate to God, to consecrate to God, to purify, that as we're sanctified, you know, we talk about salvation where we come to faith in Jesus, and from that salvation we're sanctified, we're purified, we're made like Him. Um, you know, uh, we need to be purified. You know, the water comes out of the tap. You know, think of salvation being turning on the tap in your life. God's light, God's water comes through you, but you're dirty. And you got to go through that Brita filter, and God's got to begin to sanctify and purify that your life may be drinkable and palpable to others, that they might begin to taste God and not taste the chlorine and not taste the dirt, but to taste God as He begins to wash you and cleanse you. Um, but if you're a believer, you're already made holy. Just the fact that we're saved means that we're saved out of the world, we're set apart out of the world, we're brought out of the world. Um, but from there, we need to continue that path of purification and sanctification, that as we begin to walk, God will begin to pluck things out of your life. I mean, we can probably remember when we first got saved, um, uh, things we probably did then that we might not do now, whether that's just immaturity or whether that's just sin we didn't realize was sin. But as we begin to walk, uh, God begins to reveal things to us. I remember right away, God taking away certain things from me right away, like, uh, Drinking, no desire for it anymore. Didn't want to do it. Drugs, didn't want to do it anymore. Cursing, I uh, just stopped at the time. Um, uh, but I still smoked cigarettes. And that lasted for a couple months until I'm driving home and God just began to convict me. And so I got the patch and I started trying to quit with the patch. And you're supposed to use it for a certain amount of time. And after a couple of days of that, I just felt like the Lord convicted me just saying, just stop. Just stop. I can do this. And uh, and God got me through it. So as, as things began to progress, other things began to, to come away as well. And that's the way it should be. I think sometimes we get stuck in a rut and we think, oh, well, I'm sanctified enough. But God, oh, maybe God wants us to get up earlier. Maybe God wants us to share more. Maybe God wants us to be loving more. I don't know what it is for you and for me. But God begins to peel those onion layers away as he sanctifies us. Um, but again, this is not for salvation. This is from salvation. And this word saints, hagios, which is interesting, it's related to hagiazo, sanctified. It's a most holy thing, a saint, um, someone who's called with a purpose, sanctified or called to be saints, that God calls us to be a saint, that we have a choice in this matter, that when God says, all the world, come be forgiven of your sins, come be cleansed, come follow me, as Jesus might say, that's our choice. God's called us to be a saint, but we need to, to hop on board with it in a sense. You know, I saw a headline recently that scientists uh, are, have been doing some studies and this group of scientists has come to think that free will is an illusion and that it's really our brain tricking themselves. And, and if they're accurate, I would agree with that because I believe the Bible agrees that it says that we were slaves to sin and that we've had no choice to be freed from that sin until Jesus Christ came along and freed us from that sin. And when that freedom from sin comes, we've now again regained our free will where now we have a choice to sin. We have a choice to follow God and now we may actually choose to do the right thing when as Paul might say beforehand that a wretched man that I am that I'm just doing what I don't want to do because I'm a slave to it you know because before the fall we had free will before the fall 
We could do whatever we wanted, but then once we sinned, we were stuck in it until the Messiah came. And that's why the blood of rams and goats and bulls and goats couldn't save us, but only prepare us for the future. But again, this isn't the New Orleans Saints. This isn't just a sports team. This isn't just a jersey you put on. Um, you know, this is a life that you live, a life powered by Jesus, as Corinthians would tell us that we're a new creation. But saints might be the statues of men and women on the lawn of some churches, or maybe the pictures hanging in your grandma's house. But saints definitely are anyone who believes in Jesus to save them. I mean, maybe these people who uh, the church, certain branches of the church might, uh, so-called church might edify and, and lift up and, and, and say are saints. Maybe they actually were. But you and I, as simply as it comes, you know, you walk on the street, you share with someone, and they come to faith. My little daughter, as she prays for Jesus, becomes a saint. We become a saint because we're saved. We're sanctified by Jesus, made into a most holy thing. Remember me, we were talking the other day about how we're the temple of God, that when we believe in Jesus, he lives inside of us, and that's what makes us holy, right? It makes us special because God lives in us. And again, the chairs in the church aren't holy. And you might especially say it here because we're in a home home study here, but the, they're, they're not holy. They came from Bob's furniture. But that's the same thing. When they're used for a holy purpose, in a sense, they become holy. It's not that there's anything special about the couches, but when you and I begin to follow God and are used by God, we're set apart. We become holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. But let's go on in verse 3 through 9. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in, in everything by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, this idea of grace and peace, it's, it's a major thing in the New Testament. And if you've read Thessalonians, it sounds awfully a lot like the beginning in there. It says the same thing. You know, and I don't think Paul is just copying and pasting. He's like, oh, i got to write another letter. <laughs> Let me copy and paste what I wrote to Corinthians. I think that he was genuinely thankful for these people. He's genuinely thankful for these believers in his life, that the people he used to hate, now he's thankful that they exist. Um, and, and we should be too for all believers. When you meet a believer, when you know a believer, even if you get in an argument with a believer or have a, a rift with them for the rest of your life uh, because of something that happened, hopefully that's not the case, but we should still be thankful for them because God saved them. And they're another one, whether, the, whether you like it or not, we're on the same team. You know, and I think sometimes we get caught up in people's shortcomings and differences or the fact that maybe they haven't been sanctified yet quote-unquote, as much as you have been sanctified. Well, how are we to judge that? How are we to know how bad they really were and how bad you really are and how much is left in our life or their life? You know, we forget to see that they're saved and that God loves them. And I think that that's what's really special about a new believer is that they're so zealous and so on fire and so glad to be saved that they're willing to tell anyone anything and then in some sense, they're not cognizant of their own faults or other people's faults. Everyone, I remember first getting saved and thinking everyone was so incredibly holy. And wow, everyone's like glowing, you know. And then you're in the church for a while and you realize, oh, these people are a lot like I am. Um, you know, and I think that that's a good thing. I think that in one sense, we are right to see that, wow, these people um, are holy. But in the sense that, well, you know, they're not holier than thou. That, yeah, we still have shortcomings. We don't live in sin. But uh, we're forgiven from it and freed from it um, and seeking sanctification. But these things tend to divide us. These things tend to divide us, and, and they really shouldn't. They really shouldn't. Um, you know, what is Second Corinthians 5.17? You know, that we're a new creation in Christ. We're not the old man anymore. We are new men and new women. The moment we accept Jesus, whether we look like it or not, we are different people. You know, and what about the, the few verses before that? You know, a lot of times we read scripture and we know the famous scriptures, but we don't know what comes before and after that. And what comes before it is, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. You know, and if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things become new. You know, we, we, we are to think of others as how Christ sees them, as how Jesus sees them, 
And not how we see them. Not how the world sees them. Not how the IRS sees them. Um, you know, not even how your boss or your coworkers see them, but how Jesus sees them. Um, and I think in a sense, especially believers, you know, Jesus says that, uh, you know, how they can know you're my disciples? Well, by your love for one another. So if we're not loving the world, well, okay, well, there's definitely needs to be work in our life. But if we're a believer and we're not loving other believers, well, there's definitely something wrong there. Um, you know, uh, that we are called to be saints and we need to be helping each other along this life of sanctification. We need to encourage each other in it um, and help each other along in it. But it says here, utterance and knowledge. You know, the, Criti- the Corinthians could talk the talk, I believe. And perhaps they even knew the Bible verses and where to look them up. They knew the Christianese. They, they've heard it all before, maybe. Maybe they had good, you know, teaching, so to speak, where they knew what to say. They knew what to do. They could have that spiritual conversation. But they had some things in their lives and even in their fellowship that were truly and genuinely messed up. You know, we're not going to get into that. That's something that uh, I think it was another time. But if, if we focus on that point, we begin to realize that, wow, maybe the, there's some things like that in our lives. We think of areas like the Bible Belt or even certain denominations where there's a church in every corner or people know what the Bible says. They call themselves Christians, but their life looks nothing like it. Their life has uh, no resemblance, no sanctification. They go to church on Sunday, but as soon as they leave, it's filth and foul and um, it's not just a slip up, it's a way of life where they come home and the fridge is overflowing with whatever it is that's overflowing with and whatever it is is on the TV or whatever it is they do during the week. And they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I trust in God, but is there a disconnect? Is it just immaturity? Is it just the fact that they haven't been sanctified or is it really and truly just a disconnect? You know. But again, these things that, that we follow and as we get sanctified, they tend to divide us. But really, what does the Bible say about God's wisdom? It says that God's wisdom is something that unifies us. James 3.17 says, But that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and check this, willing to yield. And that's definitely not like a lot of us. I mean, especially drivers in Maryland, not very willing to yield. <laughs> Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That the wisdom of God follows his path of purity, being peaceable, gentle, and willing to yield, and full of mercy and good fruits. And in the church, that's the way we should be. There should be this willing to yield. Okay, I agree to disagree. Oh, I just want to have peace with you. I just want to uh, work alongside you and serve you. Even if there are disagreements about things, and we'll look at some other points on that later, but that there should be this peace and this unifying peace in the church, and not in a sense to create factions and separations. Even if the person, Even if the person is a believer... And they are kind of marked by these things. We should try and reach out to them and not separate ourselves from them. I mean, obviously, as we continue to read Corinthians, there's a point when sin is so bad and and we should not accept it and we do need to handle it in a sharp way. But most of the time, we just need to love on other people and minister to other people and not judge them. I mean, a lot of people don't come to church because they feel like they're going to be judged. Um, And that's certainly not by the Lord. Um, uh, But verse 6 says, The testimony of Christ confirmed in you and this goes along with sanctification really this is the, like i talked about the water dirty water maybe coming out of your faucet you need to filter it in the brita to, to get it clear and, and and tasty or summer's coming up and maybe you do that in the pool but how are we going to see the testimony of jesus in us and uh you know and part of that is well what was was what was said about jesus true is he really god's son did he really die on the cross for sin can he really forgive me and change me? Does he perform miracles? Uh, but he says this was confirmed to them. This was the evidence of being saved, that these, this fruit begins to come out of your life that you had nothing to do with, that the picture of Jesus begins to be evident in other people, evident to other people, excuse me, as God begins to work in you. And I think a lot of times we don't even realize it's going on. I remember uh, getting saved early on and some friends who were around me began to point out things and encourage me and things that they saw change in me from the time I got saved. Uh, these are believing friends uh, to the, um, you know, to the time that they were saying those things. And, and I was like, really? I don't, I don't see that at all. I think I feel like I'm worse. Um, but uh, in Jesus' uh, life, resurrection from the dead, evidence in us. Is there that evidence in us? Like we talk about like the dead church or a church that knows the verses, but their life isn't alive. Is there evidence in that? Um, and have our own lives been resurrected from the dead? And again, not physically. We've talked about it before. But spiritually, emotionally, the things that used to kill us, are they now not evident in our lives anymore? In fact, is it opposite? 
And again, this isn't externals. This is not just a t-shirt, a new Christian language, that bumper sticker being on the quote verses, but is your life actually different? Um, and again, this isn't, well, I stopped doing this and I stopped doing this and my life is different, but God did this. God changed me in this way and brought me this way. You know, because Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs in which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. He's saying, these guys knew the scriptures. These guys had the right clothes on. These guys had the bumper sticker on their donkey. But you guys are whitewashed tombs. Inside you're dead and you reek, um, you know, in other verses might say. You know, and I hope that in all of our testimonies, that there would be evidence of that in us, that, you know, despite our follies, despite our, our backslidings or our growths, that the overall trajectory of our life would be um, one that is upward following the call of Jesus. But in verse 7, he says, um, uh, so that as you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that spiritual gifts play a big part in this. And like we mentioned about uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14 a few weeks ago, or maybe it was even last week, that these are good uh, chapters for uh, homework about spiritual gifts and just how obvious these things are. You know, for time, I'm not going to get into today. But basically, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first verse says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant, that you know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I made known to you that no one speaking the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. He's saying, you guys used to be Gentiles. Uh, the scripture is clear that God has given you gifts, and he begins to outline these gifts and how they're used and what they're used. And in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven, he says, Now you are the body of Christ uh, and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, the gift of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. You know, he begins to say that this is sort of the order of importance in them, um, in a sense of um, really like the way things are supposed to operate, not in the sense that one per, a person's apostle is more, perfect, more important than the person who's got a variety of tongues, but the fact that how the church is ordered and how the church should operate its, um, um, and what should be, uh, the working order of things. You know, don't put the cart before the horse, so to speak. And he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak Do all speak tongues, remember we talked about, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And he has to show you a more excellent way that, yeah, we want to desire these gifts, but not everyone's going to do the same thing and that there needs to be a proper order in that. And from that, you know, the study on the gifts um, and their use in the church is a great one. I think it's a very important one uh, because it removes a lot of confusion, um, and especially a lot of confusion we see even in Christianity today. Two thousand years later, after this was written, the church is still messed up on the same points. The still, the church is still doing the same things, and I think you know it's a wonder that more Christians, even more churches, don't study through or just even read plainly First Corinthians. I think if we read it, we go, oh, wow, yeah, that's pretty obvious we're doing that wrong or we're doing that right. And I think that that's why I like Corinthians so much, because it doesn't pull any punches. It's straightforward. It says, this is wrong, <laughs> this is right, this is the way it should be. And there's no, uh, in a sense, there's no room for interpretation. But he says that, so you come short in no gift. He's saying, I don't want you to miss out on reaching your full potential. Um, you know, he wants people to be full in their gifts. And if we're sinning, you know, that's really going to inhibit uh, the gift in our life. Um, just like a marriage, you know, you have the gift of marriage. But if you're sinning against your spouse, your marriage isn't going to be all that, it, all that it should be. But I don't know about you, but if you ever had half-baked cookies or raw cookie dough, that's pretty good. You know, sometimes you want to eat the cookie dough uh, before you bake them or cookie dough ice cream. I love it. I can't eat it anymore with my teeth, but it's fantastic. Or what about a half-cooked steak? You know, some people call it medium or rare. My dad likes to eat it raw. My coworker jokes about it. Just like, you know, uh, put like a heat lamp on it and then put it on my plate. You know, I forget what exactly what he says, but it's like barely cooked at all. I'm like, no thanks. I like it medium well, pretty much all the way cooked. Um, but, you know, a steak aficionado says, you know, you got to have it rare. Um, but those things are good when they're half-baked. Those things are good when they're not fully cooked. But what about chicken? You know? <laughs> Half-baked chicken. You know, you cut in the chicken. Mmm, I love pink chicken. No, I don't think anyone says that because salmonella. It'll, it could kill you. It could kill you or me. And that's the same way. When, when we begin to half-bake our lives in Jesus, when we half-bake our gifts, 
and we don't exercise them properly, we don't use them properly, um, it can kill us and it can kill others. And that's very dangerous. That's why we need to seek the Lord in those things um, that we would be not half-baked, but fully cooked, uh, so to speak. But how can we not come short in our gifts? You know, if Paul says, I don't want you to come short in them, I think we need to ask ourselves, how can we not come short in our gifts? And I think number one would be by knowing what they are. Well, if I don't want to come short in it, I better figure out what it is. Um, And really, I think the primary way of doing that is spending time with God and hearing his call personally on your life. You know, if he's calling you to be a worship leader, he's probably going to give you a musical talent, probably going to begin to develop it in you or give you a desire for it. You know, we need to ask God for that. And again, not all desires necessarily are from God. We need to pray about these things. But we need to read the Bible and know what it says about the gifts and talents. People say, oh, I don't have any gifts. I don't have, you know, even in real life, I don't know how to draw. I don't know how to do math. I don't know how to do this. Well, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried? We need to examine our desires and natural talents. We also need to listen to what spiritual leaders might have to say good about you. Sometimes someone in spiritual authority will see something in you or see a little speck of something growing in you and encourage you in that. We need to pay attention to that because that's their gift. That's why God has them doing what they're doing. But we also need to pay attention to the situation God is putting us in. Does he keep putting you in opportunities to share the gospel? Does he keep uh, giving you opportunities to share at a men's group or a women's group? Does he keep giving you uh, opportunities to pray for people who are sick? Maybe God is beginning to put you in the places where he's gifted you to use you. Um, or maybe he's just trying to stretch you. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But begin to pray about these things. And finally, I think maybe you could take one of those spiritual tests that they have uh, I, you know, I think the jury's out on that one. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily know um, uh, what I really think about those. Maybe you could, but I, I'd put it on the list maybe to give you an idea, but I wouldn't put too much weight in those things, um, you know, especially if you're not a good test taker. But number two, I'd say by being faithful in those things, by exercising those things personally and publicly, when we're asked to serve in any way, we're willing to do it. You know, God's going to begin to open up doors for us to use our giftings and develop them. You know, maybe we'll find ourselves naturally or, or feeling like you should be doing those things. Um, you know, that we're not fighting or striving to do them in place of others. Maybe we're excited about our gifts and talents, but we're not pushing people out of the way to use them. We're not tripping other people up that we might be the star of the show or whatever the, the case may be. But really that we re- recognize that Jesus is the one doing it in us and that, uh, that he's the one who receives the glory for it. You know, a lot of time God gives people natural talent But as they begin to pursue that natural talent, they begin to pursue their own fame and not his fame. And uh, that definitely shouldn't be the way with us. But number three says, eagerly await the return of Jesus, that we look for Jesus, that as we pursue these gifts and as we exercise them, that the whole point of them is that we're looking forward uh, to what God might do and that God might come back. You know, we'll find ourselves occupied in doing what we're called to do until he returns, that that becomes the goal of our life, the goal of our ministry, to do what he's got us to do until he comes back, that we find our purpose in life um, uh, in using these gifts and in, uh, in really pursuing the Lord and, and as he begins to touch us, to, to use us in those things. But that, along with that, we pay attention to what God says about the end times. We be diligent to give ourselves to the things that matter rather than living for a career or a relationship or a hobby or a sport. You know, that we're not like we're going to be devoted to these things, but that we're, we're not devoted to these things, but most devoted to Jesus. And I think as we begin to realize that, yeah, Jesus is coming back and we begin to live a life that's sanctified by that fact, we begin to say, well, if he's coming back, there's not much time. I really should give myself over to the things that matter. Um, but verse eight says, you know, the purpose is that we'd be confirmed to the end, that when he does come back or when we do die or the rapture happens or whatever comes first, that um, we may be blameless in that. And that as we begin to follow the Lord and continue to follow Him, that we would be found this, in a better state than we were when He returns. And that it really needs to begin with repentance. You know, it's a key to our relationship with Jesus. We can't continue to, in sin like the Corinthian church was thinking you could do and have a relationship with God. You know, it's one or the other. If we read First John, it's very clear. We, we can't be one or the other. And that we need to turn from sin and even the things that maybe don't even look sinful, but just the generic plans for our life, really that the enemy might want to distract you with. Um, you know, like the scripture says, those who pierce themselves through with many sorrows because they sought after riches, they desired riches, and, and, and God's riches are much better. But we need to turn to God who has greater plans for us for this life and the next. You know, I think that that's a big point, is that God has better plans for you or me, 
not just for this life, but for the next life, that these gifts all point forward to heaven, that the calling is all going towards heaven, that even God says, begin to store up treasures for yourself in heaven where rust, uh, rust and moth and thief can't steal or take away, that our goal is going towards heaven, that all these things are not to build yourself a kingdom on earth, but to uh, look forward to the kingdom in heaven and that God is faithful and that he's going to do it. And First Thessalonians 5.24 says that, that he's faithful and he's called you to do it and he will do it. And that says if God's called you, he's going to do it. You don't have to make it happen. There's no making your own way in Christianity. You know, uh, Oswald Chambers might say in, in Upmost for His Highest, in the natural life, our ambitions are our own. But in the Christian life, we have no goals of our own. We talk so much today about our decisions for Christ, our determination to be Christians, and our decisions for this and that. But in the New Testament, the only aspect that is brought out is the compelling purpose of God. You did not choose me, but I chose you, John fifteen sixteen says. And Isaiah 64, 4 goes along and says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what has prepared for him that waits for him. That as we wait on God, that as we focus on him and begin to exercise our gifts, that God's plan is going to be worked out in our lives. That's nothing that we can make for ourselves in the sense of um, um, outside of what God has for us. So yes, as we're obedient to these things, God is going to bless it. But, um, you know, we, we can't make it happen. Um, you know, maybe some people do, but it's not a work of God. Let's go on to verse 10. Uh, through 13. I, I don't know that we're going to uh, finish it all today, uh, but I'm going to try and get through um, and hit some essential points here. Verse 10 says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, uh, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or are you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, uh, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You know, in the early church, like many other churches, tended to meet mainly in houses or unofficial places from week to week. People would be arrested, killed, hurt, etc. You know, if you read the Voice of the Martyrs, we'll see that uh, as is very prevalent today in other regions of the world. But Paul pleads in Jesus' name. He's saying, listen to me as you would to Jesus because they were wrapped up in earthly names. And I think we like to name drop. You know, we like to identify with those we look up to or idolatrize. You know, like, what brand car do you have? What brand shoes are those? What brand of MP3 player or phone do you have? Oh, you have that one? Oh, you know, so-and-so. We like to name drop. Um, and that's, you know, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's not so bad in the fact that we want a quality item that we're putting our money into. But if we're putting our life into something, that name should be Jesus. It shouldn't be any other man because man will, will always fail us. Um, you know, and I think we like to feel important in that way. You know, we feel self-important because of the, the fancy branding we have on us. You know, I watched this uh, CBS thing, uh, 60 Minutes, about uh, glasses. Um, it's from a couple of years ago, but apparently most of the glasses in the world are made by one company, Luxottica, and they charge ridiculous amounts of money. It's the same thing with diamonds. You know, one company does most of the diamond mining. They control these markets. You know, people buy a Lexus and they spend all this money, but in reality, it's a Toyota Camry with leather <laughs> and a little bit different wheels and body. But underneath, it's the same thing. You know, we get caught up in these names for, for no reason. But he wants them uh, to speak the same thing. And I think that means doctrinally that they need to be agreed on the right things and they can agree to disagree on the, on the things that don't matter so much. You know, an essential versus a non-essential. Um, it's been said that we need to hold our doctrine and the essentials tightly, but the, the unessentials uh, can be kind of loose and go around. You know, essential, how are we saved? Not essential, perhaps, does the rapture really happen before the tribulation? Essential, is Jesus really God? Not essential, who wrote Hebrews? Essential, is the Bible 100% accurate? Not essential, can you play drums in church? You know, I know I can't. But, you know, in my opinion, I think they're all essential, but the point is, is that we shouldn't be divided over the things that need no division. 
and that there shouldn't be any divisions among us, that we need to be of the same mind perfectly uh, in the same judgment. Again, we need to agree on the essentials and agree to disagree on the non-essentials. And part of that problem here is that the church got very clicky. Uh, you know, oh, you go to Chloe's house? Well, our Bible study is better. Oh, well, you worship at uh, this guy's house? Well, it's way cooler there. You know, they have a pool after church. Um, uh, yeah, well, Billy Graham baptized me. Oh, yeah, well, Dr. Charles Stanley signed my Bible. Or, oh, yeah, Greg Laurie ate something out of my refrigerator. We get, you know, as you begin to be in Christianity for a while, you begin to notice these things and go, well, why? What's the, what's the point? Seriously, like, if we're really saved, why are we caught up in this country club, you know, Real Housewives of the Potomac uh, mindset? Um, you know, in denominations, um, it's defined by a name or a value. That's sort of my definition, you know. And think about money. Money is classified in denominations, 1, 5, 10, 50, 100. And I think some of us probably see more or less of certain denominations than others, you know. Um, I, I probably see more, probably no money now because we all go cashless. But um, sincerely, you know, I don't know that we want to be divided by that. First Baptist, First Church of God, and so-and-so. Really? The first? Really? You know, and I think even Calvary, even though it's technically not a denomination, sometimes we can act like it is. You know, I looked up a list of modern uh, denominations in Wikipedia, and just to name a few, Apostolic Lutheran Church of America, Lutheran Church of Central Africa, Zambia Conference, Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod in the United States, Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, Lat- uh, Latvian, Anglican Church, you know, all these, like, like everyone somewhere, somewhere got in an argument and said, we're going to go do something different, and we're going to put a different name on it. And we're not going to talk to you because you don't have the same name on your building. And, and I don't agree with that. Now, as Paul would say, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, well, how about if, if the Jesus are our Lord, that we're all a part of the same church? And I don't mean that we're going to be united with someone who has false beliefs or, uh, again, to disagree in the essentials. But, man, if, if Jesus is Jesus, let's worship together, whether you use harps or not. Um, you know, there's good division and there's bad division. You know, there's there's good there's good unity and there's bad unity. We need uh, to be cognizant of that. But in a sense, we just sometimes we get so caught up in doing things our own way that we're unwilling to think that God might work uh, through uh, another style or another person. Um, but again, how to prevent this? We're not to water down the word. What the Bible says, the Bible says. We're not to follow a man or a name. More than God. Yes, Paul says, follow me, but he says, follow me as I follow Jesus. And we also need to know the Bible for ourselves. We need to know what it says. We can't just listen to a teacher and take what they take, what they say is face value and, and get all our, you know, these, I think they're well-meaning and I think it's probably just a matter of immaturity, but someone who, who's a believer and follows a teacher and that's the only person they listen to. That's the only person that, you know, if, if you ask them what they believe, they just regurgitate what that person believes and they don't really know it for themselves. And, and you know, that comes along in all stages of the matter, but I think sometimes that's where people stop and that's where we get into danger zones. But we need to be, seek to be unified with other believers, make uh, friends, share truth, confess sin, pray for each other. You know, I look forward to the men's ministry next week and the men's conference end of this, this month where you get together with believers from other churches or even uh, different names on the building. And I think that that's good because we all believe the same essentials. But really that we need to get involved with a good church. And that finally, and I think probably first, we remember that Jesus died for you, that God himself died for you and for me. And we're going to wrap up here in a minute. But, um, you know, uh, Paul goes on and talks about that, you know, he didn't want to baptize anyone in his own name. He's thankful because God had called him to do something different. Paul's claim to fame was not who he baptized or how many he baptized or how many followers he had, but what the calling on Paul's life was to preach the gospel. And if, and if he did a couple of baptisms along the way, that's because that came up, but that wasn't his primary calling you know we talk about um you know the need for deacons in the church to do the other work of the church that the the pastors and apostles might do the praying and the bible study and the teaching um that we might be devoted to the right areas in that you know paul knew his main calling in verse 17 was to tell people about jesus not to baptize them and i think that that's important and when god does call us that we focus on that call that we don't get sidetracked by other calls. Not that we're not willing to do the other thing. Not that we're not open to, uh, you know, not that uh, pastors, well, I'm never going to do a baptism because God just called me to be a pastor. Well, that's a lie because baptism goes along with it. But again, that our, our primary calling would be one that, um, that we do. And, and Paul talks about that, uh, you know, it, these fancy words that he's not going to use because it waters down the gospel. 
It takes the focus off the message and puts it on the person speaking. That Oh, look at the, the, the heady words that he used and the fancy words that he used. But God used fishermen. And yeah, Paul was educated, but Paul said, my education is worth nothing if it takes away from the gospel. And they also can cause confusion and unhealthy division again, that we need to be wary of these things. Let's see if we can just read these last few verses and close up. Uh, last bunch of verses but it says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of this world for since in the wisdom of god the world through wisdom did not know god it pleased god through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption that is as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Um, but we see, you know, the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. People think that, you know, that universities and evolution of creationism, uh, you know, that there's this big fight. Have you ever saw that movie Expelled with, uh, uh, what's his name, Ben Stein? Is that his name? Yeah. Uh, you know, where there really is this whole thing, even with climate change, you know, whether it's happening or not happening, the fact that you're going to call anyone who disagrees with your point of view as a heretic is kind of scary. Um, or someone that you want to fire or even bring charges against. If you read what the Department of Justice and the government has been trying to do to anyone who denies climate change, well, that's kind of scary if the, you know, that we can't have a, a varying opinion based on that data, which is um, open to interpretation. But I digress. You know, that God's, God's wisdom is greater. Even the smartest person in the world, the wisest person in the world, is absolutely foolish to God. And that's why when God calls us, he sometimes he doesn't call the wise. In fact, as Paul says here, he calls the foolish. He calls the people who don't have that, that wisdom, who don't have that stature, who don't have um, everything that the world has because they're listening for God. And in fact, God says, I don't want you to have all these things because I don't want anyone uh, else to get glory for stuff that's mainly of God. You know, if we remember uh, Abraham, when he rescued Lot and the king of Sodom offered him all this stuff, he said, no, 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 give my men their fair share, but I don't want anything because I don't want anyone to possibly say that it wasn't God uh, who gets the credit in this. Um, you know, and, he, and God chooses the base things. You know, the world is going to think we're crazy. We're stupid. We're foolish. But God uses that to put them to shame. That although they may think that they're not in shame, they may think that they're clothed in their own righteousness as they look on at at, uh, Christians who believe certain things and who might even call Christians bigots or closed-minded or foolish or dumb or uneducated. But really, that's just going to reveal their shame. It reveals who they are. And in fact, when they stand before God one day, they're going to realize that, wow, I was a real fool. As the psalmist says, that the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. That the real fool is a person who denies God. And I think that it's very interesting that a lot of people who claim to be wise and who claim to be educated uh, also claim that there is no God. And, they, and that's what blows me away the most about atheism and things of that nature uh, are those who, uh, who spend their whole life dedicated to disproving a God that they say doesn't exist. You know, if he doesn't exist, I think I would just go about my business. Like, I don't spend my whole day trying to disprove um, uh, Allah, because I know he doesn't exist. In fact, I know it's really just Satan uh, deceiving people. And I could probably be arrested or fined for that, given <laughs> or fired from my job if I was in a public office for saying that. But, uh, you know, do you want the unity that comes in knowing Jesus? You know, have you been baptized? <laughs> These simple things. But in the, in the end of it, you know, do we see our calling, brethren, that our calling is the unity? 
Our calling is in the gospel. Our calling is to bring others to the Lord, but our calling is to know the Lord more and that to seek Him and to seek the things that He has for us. Not that we would seek the gifts for the gifts themselves, but they would, we would seek the one who gives the gifts. Because I think a lot of times when we seek the gifts themselves, we get derailed, we get distracted. But when we seek God for who He is, He begins to pour out those gifts and those blessings on us. You know, Because all these things, unity, baptism, gifts, calling, and wisdom, when done in the Lord and for the Lord, will bring glory to the Lord. You know, and I think when they don't, it's probably because He's not the one being glorified um, or calling for it to be said and done. You know, a lot of these people go out and pick it and, and say, like, God hates certain groups of people or certain people are sinning. Well, that's not God. God hates the sin, but He's not telling these people to go out and pick it and it ends up bringing a bad name on them and on the church. Uh, but that's really the end purpose of it all, to glorify God. You know, that's what heaven is. We're in, in heaven with God, and He's glorious, and we're naturally going to glorify Him. So these gifts, when they work in unison and are, are exercised through grace, and our, the calling is through grace, um, uh, God is glorified, and we're unified. I mean, that's what the, the Ten Commandments are. That's what the law of God is. That's what Jesus boiled it down to is. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. And, and when those gifts are, are, are exercised and given, that's what happens. We love God. We say, God, I love you and I know you can heal this person. And God chooses to heal them through you. Well, that's love being exercised. When God, I love you and I know you're calling me to do this even if I don't want to do it. I don't feel like doing it. And God begins to do work and do it through you. Well, who gets glorified? God does. People say, oh, that was a great message. Or, oh, that worship was great. Or, oh, I can't believe you shared with all those people. How'd you do it? And you go... I have no idea. It was God. <laughs> I was shaking all the way up to get on that stage. I was nervous and crying, and I didn't even want to go over and talk to you. And, and God just kept compelling me to do it. You know, you know that it's God who's going to do it and get the glory. So, Father, we ask that uh, you would get the glory, that God, uh, Lord, we would seek you and you first and not your gifts, and that your church, especially in these last days, God, would be unified, that uh, the believers... In the, t- in the towns around here and in uh, the places we go would begin to be sanctified and, and uh, that God you would bring revival that God in the men's group next week would you bless it with the, uh, the pastor's conference God would you minister to the men there and minister to their wives and the other people too as you begin to separate us out and speak to us and then bring us back and minister to the people God would you would you do that and would you bring a revival in this land and would the, the people who claim to be wise Realize how foolish it is to live without you. And, and may we do that too. Help us realize in every day how much we need you. And we love you, God, and we thank you for these things. Uh, all by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.